0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a
1: podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts.
2: Shelley Archambo joins us today to talk about ambition, overcoming imposter syndrome, finding mentors, making better decisions, leading authentically, and achieving your career goals and your life goals. Shelley is one of Silicon Valley's first female African-American CEOs. Today, she serves on the boards of Nordstrom, Okta, Roper Technologies, and Verizon after years as CEO of MetricStream. Shelley is also the author of the book Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms. It's rare to find advice that's both incredibly inspiring and actionable today. Shelly delivers this. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome, everyone. Please welcome Shelly Archambeau. We lose something without the live audience. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Exactly.
2: (laughs) And Shelly, first, I must say that in reading your book, you just reframed things from are my personal and professional dreams possible for me to what can I do to increase the odds that they actually happen? And it was just such an empowering message and so timely right now. So um, before we begin, let's um, engage our audience a little bit. And you shared that your very first job was working in a stable to pay for riding lessons, horse riding lessons. And let's ask attendees today, what was their first job? Let's, Let's see that.
1: And while they're filling that in, and you can be yeah. more specific, I cleaned stalls. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it wasn't this glamorous, oh, we're <laughs> the stables and groom horses and no no. I was cleaning out the muck. That's what I was doing.
2: <laughs> well, and it sounds like you and your mom were both are both horse lovers. And so can you tell a little bit about your mom? Because it seems like um, there's a, a few stories that really helped uh, define ambition.
1: Yeah, really. It really did. You know, so I grew up in a household of very modest means. Money was always tight. Daddy got paid twice a month. And when dad got paid, we all got envelopes. We got our allowance for the next two weeks. And when I say we all, I mean, my dad got an envelope too. So we all got our envelope and that was all we had and um mom you know we never ate out at restaurants she cooked everything from home um she made all of our clothes you know sewing i mean so when i say modest means modest means so here's a woman who was always working i mean i don't, i it's hard to remember her sleeping and i'm cleaning up the kitchen one night it's my time to clean up the kitchen there's four kids and i'm the eldest and i'm sitting there i'm washing like the pie plan mom that only makes dinner but we have a homemade dessert every night I mean, it's really ridiculous how hard she worked. And so I'm cleaning the pie plan. I'm thinking about this. I'm like, you know, mom works so hard. And when it came time to eat dinner dessert tonight, you know, you cut up the pie and everybody reaches for the biggest piece and mom gets the smallest piece because she takes the last one. And I'm like, I'm not doing this. So I walk out to my mom after I finished, you know, I bring her a cup of coffee and I'm like, mom, I've decided I am not having children. <laughs> I'm like 13, 14 years old. I'm like, I am not doing this. And she's like, wait a minute, sit down, what are you talking about? I said, mom, I am not willing to work as hard as you work for the smallest piece of pie. I said, I'm, I'm just not doing it. And she said to me, sit down. She goes, Shelly, I don't care about the pie. If I cared about the pie, I wouldn't have the smallest piece. There are other things that I care about and I have everything that I want and I'm going after everything that I want. She says, the key is to decide what you want and focus on that and let go of the rest. I'm like, huh? Well, several years later, my mother bought a horse. <laughs> a horse. I mean, here we are, right? With our envelopes and you know homemade clothes and the whole bit. But mom got her horse. So it taught me early to decide what it is that you want and then go after it. Figure out a plan, make the trade-offs, make the choices. But you can have anything that you want if you're willing to work for it and make
2: choices and trade-offs to get it. Love that. And I love in your book that you said uh, choices, not sacrifices. That's right. That's a real that and that
1: part is really important to me, Anne, because people will ask me sometimes, oh my gosh, Shelly, with all you did, you must have made so many sacrifices. And what I say is, no, (laughs) I didn't make a single sacrifice. Now I made a ton of very hard trade-offs and very tough choices. But the difference between the two, that vernacular to me is significant. A sacrifice is something that I do completely for someone else, for someone else. And when you make sacrifices for someone else, you put a ton of pressure on that person. Because suddenly, if I'm sacrificing everything for you, then you better feel appreciative. Right. You better have gratitude. You better thank me. You better. do. And if you don't do that enough, then I'm going to get upset because I did all this for you. And you're not even grateful. Right. Think about in your lives. You can think of these conversations happening. Right. So no, no, no. When you do that, you give your power away. Instead, I make choices and I make decisions contemplating, obviously, myself and everyone else. But I make them. I own them. There's no one else that I'm looking to for reinforcement, right, over them. So I make choices and trade-offs. I don't make sacrifices.
2: Amazing. Um, and you've always been a planner. And at 16, you identified that you wanted to be a CEO. Oh, sure. so tell us, what does the planning process look like, both of really refining what you want and then making the plan? Yeah. So, you know,
1: I became a planner because I, I learned that if I was intentional about what I was trying to achieve, I could improve my odds to actually get it. So what I did was i pick an objective, right? Whatever it is, it's my goal. What is it I'm trying to do? So I want to become CEO, I'm 16. All right, I want to become CEO. Look around, not a lot of people look like me. Okay, odds are not in my favor, I'm used to that. So I say, all right, so what has to be true for me to become CEO? Which just means I have to do my research. I have to figure out what has to be true. So I do the research, what are their backgrounds? What are the skills? Where do they go to college, right? I do all this stuff. And then based upon that, I say, okay, how do I make it true? Which becomes my plan, my action of how I make it happen. So it was then that I said, all right, well, people don't look like me, right? I need to have the best credentials possible because people aren't gonna assume that that's something that I can do. So I decided I had to go to the top business school. So I went to Wharton. I mean, it was just all these decisions. I picked technology, not because I was a programmer or frankly in love with tech at the time. I picked it because it was a growing industry and growing industries have growing companies and growing companies never have enough resources as you guys all know. And therefore, if you're good at what you do, underscore good at what you do, you will get more opportunities faster to take on more and more responsibility. Well, that fit my ambitions. I wanted to do all that. So every decision I made was in line with that overall plan. And I did that professionally, but also personally, any goal. What's the goal?
2: What has to be true? How do I make it true? And then I execute. And we're operating now in an unprecedented time, with the pandemic and things like that. How do you handle it when life throws a curveball that really needs to change a plan?
1: Yeah, no, definitely plans. I mean, I have a whole section of the book called Swerve. Right, And the reason it's called Swerve is because, yes, you can make plans, but it doesn't mean everything is going to happen that way. So you have to be flexible and agile and figure out a different approach when you do get an obstacle or a roadblock or something in your way. So right now, pandemic, economic situation, political mess, I mean, all, all kinds of things happening that affect your business, your strategy, your customers. Right. So what do you do about it? Well, first is you make sure that you've got the basics covered. So solve the crisis. If there's a crisis that this has caused, solve that. Once you've solved it, though, keep your eye on the prize. Don't get distracted with all this noise. You know, it's almost like, you know, three and four-year-olds. I'm right now in Tampa, Florida, and I have some grandchildren. Three and four-year-olds, what do they do? They'll spin around. They love to get themselves dizzy, right? They spin and spin and spin and they'll wobble. And next, you know, bam, they're flat on their back, right? typically giggling, but flat on their back. (laughs) Well, you can use the same analogy to when crisis and pandemic, economic, racial justice, right? Global challenge, political, all this stuff is chaos and craziness. So what do you need to do? You have to focus. It's like a dancer. A dancer can spin and spin and spin and spin and stop and go on fluidly. Don't get dizzy at all. Why? They pick a focal point and they keep their eyes trained on that focal point and they spin spin around, spin whip around. As CEOs, as entrepreneurs, we need to keep that focal point that what's the prize? What is the strategy? What is it we're trying to do? And once you get things in place that you're out of the crisis, stay focused on that and make decisions consistent with that. Don't let yourself wander and get pulled into all these other directions. Otherwise, you'll let it flat on your back like a three year old.
2: <laughs> Hopefully, giggling, but still. <laughs> sure. uh, okay, we're gonna jump around a little bit. You have a very unique strategy for working with mentors. You say adopt them. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So, just
1: a quick story when I was uh, at IBM, uh, probably, I don't know, six or seven years into my career, IBM decided that they wanted their high potential people to have mentors. And they asked us who we wanted our mentors to be. Well, I picked a guy that I knew was a couple levels above me. I thought he liked me. I said, great, I'll pick a Roland. So I put his name down. Well, several days later, he calls you back, Shelly. Hi, Roland. Shelly, you put my name down to be your mentor. And I'm like, well, yeah, Roland, I thought you liked me. And he said, Shelly, you've got me. Go get somebody else. And I was like, oh. So I, I learned a couple things in that very short period of time. One. I had mentors that I do not even know were mentors. It doesn't have to be a formal relationship. And two, I can have as many as I want. And so I took that and literally put it on steroids. I'm like, huh, well, one mentor is good, three is better, 10 is wonderful, 50. I mean, literally, over my career, I've had a ton of them. But I also learned, you don't ask people to be your mentor. Don't ask, because a lot of times they're too busy, they don't have time, and you'll get the no, right? instead just adopt them. Treat them like a mentor. And before you know it, they might even claim you as a mentee, even though you never had that formal conversation. So I talk in the book about how to do it. But bottom line is you ask people simple questions to start that don't take much time and effort. Then you respond back and let them know how they've influenced and affected you. And if you just keep doing that over time,
2: you'll end up with a mentor. But that's how I've gotten Just about all of my mentors. Amazing. Very, very helpful tips. Okay. Now switching over to imposter syndrome. So Uh how have you dealt with it? How do you recommend other people overcome it? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I can't tell you how to overcome it (laughs)
1: because I've had imposter syndrome my entire life, my entire life. Uh, And it's interesting because I'm writing the book and I talk about it all through the book because I've dealt with it every single step but I did a little bit of research and it turns out that most people suffer from imposter syndrome at some point or another. Women suffer from it more than men and women of color get it the worst. So I can't tell you how to get over it because believe it or not, I still have it at times crazy, but I can tell you how to deal with it. And the way you deal with it is number one, realize that it's not you. It's actually in the environment. If everybody suffers from it, then it's in the air, okay? So when you hear that little voice, realize it's not real. It's just kind of in the air, it's like television. Sounds real, looks real, makes can feel real, it's not real. We tell our kids that all the time, it's not real. Don't get scared, don't get worried, it's not real. Well, this little voice telling you, you're not capable. Oh, wait till they find out, you don't know as much as they think you know, right? What makes you think, you, I mean, all those things that little voice is telling you, that voice is not real. All right, if that doesn't work, then realize that the time you feel imposter syndrome is typically when someone else is offering you something, a job, an opportunity, join a group, right? Enter a room, speak in for whatever it is. Something is happening. And that's when you start to feel it. Well, if they've asked you, if they've invited you, if they've offered something to you, it's because they believe you can do it. So if you can't believe in yourself, believe them. And if that doesn't work, Fake it. Fake <laughs> it. I love that. Right? Love just it. act like you know what you're doing until you do, because you always do. Eventually, you always figure it out. So just shoulders back, heads up, and walk in that room mm-hmm. like you're confident.
2: Well, related to that, you have a tip that says broadcast your ambitions. Can you tell more about that?
1: I honestly believe that if you don't tell the universe what you need and what you want, the universe can't help you. And I firmly believe that the universe will help you because it's helped me all the way through. If I let people know what I want, people generally want to be helpful. So how do you do that? Well, you don't walk around saying, oh, hey, I want to be CEO. So, you know, figure it out for me, right? (laughs) No, it doesn't work. Nobody wants to help that person. Um, But instead, if you just ask people for help and you can do that and share your aspirations at the same time. For instance, the conversation is, You know, and one day I aspire to be the chief marketing officer of a retail company, right? Do you think I have the potential to do that? And typically when you ask a question like that, all you're asking about is potential. So most people that you would say that to will say yes, because it's no commitment, right? Wonderful. Now you've got them hooked. It's like fishing. So once they say yes, you say, great. What experiences do you think would help me? compete for that kind of job? What skills should I be developing? It gives you a chance to ask for the roadmap, right? The roadmap, and then it gives you a chance to then check in with the person on, hey, you suggested I do X, Y, and Z, and I've done Z. Here's what happened, right? And now you've got a supporter. So you know, I find that people think that asking for help, asking questions, right? They think that's a sign of weakness. I will tell you, it is a sign of strength. It's a sign of strength. So reframe that in your mind because the best
2: way to, i found to do almost anything is to either ask for help or give help. Super. And this is a perfect segue to a question we have from Nate Wynn in the chat, which also is referenced in your book. And so what Nate says is, how do you recommend we balance between showing confidence in our work and being vulnerable enough with mentors or others to achieve growth and maybe related to that is a point in your book. There was a study that said women didn't used to ask for anything. Now they're asking more. But sometimes when you're asking, you're perceived as bossy or aggressive or something like that. So,
1: Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of things wrapped in there. So first, with regards to this whole notion about being confident and yet vulnerable. So I will tell you that vulnerability is absolutely a side effect of being ambitious. You have to show vulnerability because when you ask for help, when you ask for advice, you're being vulnerable, right? When you share things that you're not quite confident about and all that, you're being vulnerable. But if you aren't being vulnerable, then you can't learn from others. So you have to be vulnerable um, in order to be able to achieve all these things. With regards to asking, and especially women, so yes, women are asking more, which is good. But we have such a narrow lane that we're allowed to walk before we're considered too weak or too bitchy, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, we've got this kind of this lane. Now, women, it's narrow. Women of color, it's like pencil thin. <laughs> right? So, just so we're clear. Um, so, how do you how do you do it? Now, first of all. A lot of people say, well, gosh, why should I have to act different? That's not fair. Well, you know what? Life isn't fair. That's another thing you'll hear over and over in my book. It's not fair. So you can either spend a lot of time focused and upset that it's not fair or just figure out how you make things work in your favor, given the environment that we've been dealt. And then over time, as more and more of us are successful, people will see a different paradigm. But how do you do this? You let people know what you want. But you don't do it with here's what I want, here's why I should get it, the whole bit. That is that's professional, absolutely professional. But for women, doesn't work. Women of color, absolutely not. No, what you have to do typically what I've done is to go in and tell them what you would like, right? Not so much what you demand. And again, I always do it by asking for help or feedback, you know, in terms of, well, you know, one day I aspire to be promoted. Um, and here are the things that you've suggested that I need to do. Here's what I've done, right? What else needs to be shown? Because this is something that I'm very passionate about and really want to do. To, I mean, so you do it in a way in which you are asking for their help to support you, right, in something. Now, are there times you need to ask for something? The answer is yes, but you try to ask for it in a way that shows others how it helps them. I negotiated once for a job uh, at a company called North Point, They were offering a job for EVP of sales. But when I asked them how they were going to measure success, they said by reducing their cost of sales while growing, right, the business. And I said, well, then I want marketing too, right? Now, I didn't say, then I want marketing too, because that would have been like, (laughs) okay, no, no. But what I did say was, if that's what you want to achieve, 50% of your cost of sale is typically in your marketing budget. And if it's in the marketing budget, then in order for me to truly impact it, It would be helpful to have both and I've led marketing as well as sales. And here are the five things that I would do right off the bat, blah, 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 blah. So if you really want me to achieve this as soon as possible, you really ought to think about putting these together. Now, did I ask for that? Yes, I did. But did I do it in terms of how it will help them and why they should want to give it to me? I did. And you know what? They did. They combined the job. So those are some tips that I'd offer.
2: Wonderful. Um, So unfortunately, you've had to um, encounter and address systemic racism and lots of challenges. And we have lots of early stage founders assembled here who are thinking about diversity and inclusion in their own companies. Can you um, talk a little bit about how you might advise them?
1: Sure. So first, start early. You're in the best position. You know, here's what happens with larger companies, whether it's boards or executive teams. It's like, oh, we need to bring in diversity. Well, they have like one job left, all right? So for that one job, they're now saying, well, gosh, I can't find the right person for one job. You've got an organization of hundreds, if not thousands of people, all right? Start early, whether it relates to your board or your leadership team. If you start from the beginning, you have every job to fill. So therefore, you are wide open on skill sets, capabilities, right, all those things. So start early. If you don't have the network, Spend time, build the network, leverage other people's networks, but be intentional. The key is be intentional. It's not gonna happen by accident because by accident happens with what we can immediately see and touch, which is our existing networks. So you have to be intentional if this is what you wanna do and study after study, after study, after study, after study, shows that diversity, whether it's at the board level, the leadership level, the company level, improves, innovation returns, right? So yeah, just be intentional about it.
2: Excellent. Rumor has it that you had a stuffed elephant on your desk at MetricStream. <laughs> can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I did. You know, one of the things that happens as you rise higher and higher in the organization is people become less likely to tell you What's happening directly. You know, I like to say that the higher you get, the harder you have to listen because people hint at it, right? Or they get, but they don't just tell you. So I had an elephant because the elephant meant, you know, there's a whole thing about the elephant under the table, the thing that everybody knows about, but nobody mentions because I don't want to be the one to, you know, raise this nest. So I kept the elephant and the elephant was literally in my office. And if I felt things were going on or nobody had raised like the topic or the issue in a while, I'd stick it on the table. and what's the elephant, right? I mean, but the bottom line is you have to create an environment that people know you actually want to hear it. You can't say, I want to hear it. And then when you're told it, you get upset or you get angry or you, there's retribution or somebody's account. I mean, as soon as you do that, you're not getting anything. All right. So you have to create an environment in which people feel encouraged to actually share which means you also have to, you can not be vindictive and all kind of things. But if you also don't address it, you're not going to get those elephants either. Because then why bother? Why should I take the risk of raising the elephant when nothing's going to happen anyway? So you have to be willing to take action or say you're not taking action and here's why. But there needs to be a formal closure.
2: Great. Uh, when you joined Zaplet, which merged later with MetricStream, it was months from bankruptcy. It was a risky and hard choice. It oh. <laughs> worked out great, but can you talk a little bit about how you think about which risks are good to take? And
1: ah, yes. Yeah. So first of all, taking risks, I think, is critical if you have high aspirations and ambition. You know, again, studies show people who take risks in their career actually go farther and or happier, whether or not they achieve their ultimate objective or not um, with with their career. So it's important to get comfortable with risk taking. Now that doesn't mean you take any risk. You take risks that make sense. And the questions that I would ask myself is, all right, what is the opportunity in front of me? What is the likely outcome, right? What's the potential way upside? And if that looks like, if that's exciting, Then I asked myself, what is the worst that could happen? And can I live with it? And when you put it in those terms, you'd be amazed with how much you can live with. Because if it doesn't impact my health, if it's not going to sacrifice my family, if it is not going to put me out on the street, right, then I can actually handle a lot. Um, So frame it for yourselves. Many times we don't take risks because we're afraid yet we haven't actually defined what the fear is. Could I get embarrassed? Yeah, can Can I live with that? (laughs) I can, right? Could I, I mean, so if you really dig into those things, um, I think you'll find that you can actually take more risks. I like to tell people, deal with facts, not with fear. You know, life is scary. The world is absolutely scary. But if you figure out the facts, the why, what could really happen? What is it we're really scared of? and really peel the onion back many times
2: becomes a lot less scary and therefore you're willing to take the risk. Love it. And one more question for me, and then we'll bring on some other folks to ask you questions. But um, you've said that a key mistake that startups often make is falling in love with their product. Mm. Can you elaborate a little bit? I can. So here's what happens,
1: you know, falling in love with your product. It's almost like, it's like a baby. All right. When you have a baby, Nobody in the world can tell you your baby's ugly. Uh, Nope, nope. (laughs) Your baby is perfect, right? And you are going to nurture and care for every single need and requirement, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, when you fall in love with your product, then all of a sudden you're treating your product just like this baby your product is perfect. Oh wait, no, you just don't understand how to use it. Let let me make sure you're being trained right. Oh no, no, you just haven't figured out the benefit of that feature, right? We've become defensive with our product because we know it's perfect. No, 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 it's much better to fall in love with your market, with your customer, so that all that care, feeding, nurturing, Responsiveness is all focused on what customers need and what customers want so that you can adapt and adjust and develop the future roadmap for your product to meet the future needs. But many companies, people fall in love with the product instead of with the market, with the customer, with the actual problem that they're trying to solve. And that's a big issue because once you fall in love with the product and not the market, odds
2: are your product is not going to fit the market need for long. Super advice. Okay, so let's transition a little bit. We'll bring uh, Yael up to the stage.
0: Hello. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time, Shelley and Anne and the whole Village team for, for putting this on. Loved a bit about what you were talking about earlier about imposter syndrome. And, and one area
1: that I wanted to kind of dig into a bit was would love your advice on how to handle gendered pushback on unapologetic ambition. In other words, like how do you best set yourself up for success as an unapologetically ambitious woman in a world where that can sometimes be perceived as aggressive or off-putting in some ways? Definitely appreciate some of what you're talking about
0: in the the way in which you were doing it. Would love to just dig into that a little bit more.
1: Sure. So the reason I even titled the book Unapologetically Ambitious is because many times I was told I was ambitious, and it wasn't always meant as a compliment. And if you think about it, that's ridiculous. You would never, like, raise your child to say, work hard, do your best, try things, take risks, and, oh, but, but, but don't be too ambitious. <laughs> oh, what is that? So, yeah. you know, unapologetically ambitious is everybody, everyone deserves to be ambitious, and we shouldn't have to apologize for it. So when it comes to the workplace and what we're trying to do, right, when people say things, so here's what I do, you know, what I learned to do is if I got the feedback on, oh, they are too ambitious, or and again, it's meant as a negative, or anything along those veins, because sometimes that's what they're saying, but they don't use the word ambitious, right? And I'm sure you've experienced that. What you say, what I used to do, is I would act like I was kind of stupid. You know, I'd like be like, oh, what, what do you mean? Can you, can, you, can you explain that to me? All right, now, why did I do that? Because many times people don't even realize what they're saying. They just don't realize. So now they have to explain it. You're too ambitious or whatever this. is. Now they have to explain it. And you know what happens? And just keep digging. I mean, I just keep saying, I mean, explain, what do you mean? Can you give me an example, right? How would you have handled that? What? And what happens is they realize it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> All right, they realize it. So instead of taking it at face value, never take those kinds of comments at face value. Don't take it and say, geez, can you believe that person said that? No. You actually, if it's at a meeting, if it's anything afterwards, you say, Hey, you know, I, I just want to make sure I understand and take the feedback, right? Can you just help me understand? But many times doing it that way, you can actually help change a perspective one person at a time. Super. That's Thank wonderful. You so
0: Thank you. And now up next is Amrit. Hey, Shelly. Uh, hey, hey, Anne. Thanks so much for uh, uh, for this. Awesome session. Uh, it sounds like Yale and I are kind of on the same wavelength, uh, asking about imposter syndrome. Uh, you know, I feel it too. Uh, I'm a first-time entrepreneur, and I think if everything goes well, I'll be feeling like an imposter for the rest of my career. Uh, <laughs> yeah, So, <laughs> in that spirit, I you know I, I really honed in on your uh, uh, comment to fake it like you uh, fake it till you make it. Uh, it sounded like you had some power pose ideas. Is there any other advice or you know, maybe some stories from your career that you can share uh, with with a seed stage entrepreneur who feels imposter syndrome on a daily basis? And, and yeah. yeah, absolutely. So
1: when I first became CEO, you know, people tell you it's lonely. I mean, you hear all these things. Right. But until I was actually in the job, that was all intellectual information. Um, And suddenly it was like, oh, it's lonely because I have no peers. Everybody works for me or I work for them. I'm like, ah, that, you know, so it's like, ah, okay. Uh, So all these things that should have been obvious, I didn't feel and understand before. So the first thing I did to help myself with this whole imposter syndrome is I'm like, I need peers. So I literally pulled together my own group. And I happened to pick women. I wanted women entrepreneurs back in, you know, 2000, when did we pull it together in 2004, 2005? Uh, Because there weren't very many of us and some of the issues we faced were actually very specific to us. So I pulled together a group about, you know, eight of us, I think, to start. They were also building companies and literally we became each other's peers. And it wasn't and you know, we get together officially like once a quarter, but it wasn't the once a quarter things that were important. It was all the calls in between to say, oh, my God, I've got to redo this cap table. Right. How who's done that before? Because I didn't want to go to my board. Right. I didn't want to go. You want to. So you need people or can you believe this just happened? Whatever it was. So that became my group. And as a result, it helps with imposter syndrome, because if you can build more confidence by actually chatting with people who have done things before, Right. And again, it's not like everybody had done it before, but we'd all done enough different things that we were able to support each other all the way through. We met for we continued to meet literally um, until like just a few just a few years ago um, and mainly because we just picked a different forum.
2: So that group went on for a dozen years.
0: That's awesome. Thank you.
2: Yep. Amazing. And um, we have another question, which is what do you do when people aren't well intentioned and when you follow up? with the questions you suggested, like, oh, can you give me an example? And they're not forthcoming.
0: Mm.
1: Unfortunately, well, I think most people are well-intentioned. There are some people that are not. So if you figure out that they are not, then you just have to treat them like a roadblock and you figure out a different way around it. It's hard to, to change uh, a person's values, a person's personality, a person's, you know, all, all those things. Um, Fortunately, in my experience, those people have been fewer, you know, in general, most people are actually well-intentioned. They just don't always have the tools or don't always understand or haven't had the experience or you know, all those other things. But when I find ones that are just not, they're not going to get it, and it doesn't matter how much time or effort, I just treat
2: them like a roadblock and I work around them. Great. And we have uh, a question from Rachel Craig, who's going to join us on the stage here. Hi, Shelley. First of all,
1: thank you so much for this amazing talk. The question I have for you comes from, I'll pick up myself, I've got a 50% female team, many women of color that I work with. And so one of the things we talk about is that when you are a woman of color in the workplace, there's an unfair extra burden of discernment when you're hitting a growth challenge, right? Is it one, you know, something that I should take control of in terms of learning a new skill and developing myself? Or two, is this a bias that I need to tactfully push past and find a way to get around so that I can grow. And I'm curious how you think about coaching and developing that discernment ability, which is so important, uh, particularly to women and women of color's careers. Mm. So, you know, I I think it's important to be continually learning, right, and growing. And when you think about skill sets that you need to have yourself versus Mm. others have, a lot of that's tied to your ultimate aspirations, of what? What are you actually shooting for? So it's hard to answer in a vacuum. There isn't a general statement, but I want to say, given the audience of you know Global Village is typically entrepreneurs and investors and whatever, I'm going to assume that um, you're either trying to build companies yourself or build companies by bringing financing to build companies, and that's the overall objective. So you want to make sure that the skill sets that are required to be successful in those capacities that you are absolutely building. You know, but there's, but there will definitely be others that you don't need to build, but if you're not gonna build them, make sure they're always a part of your team somewhere. You know, I, one of the things I like to say is focus on your strengths versus mm-hmm. on your weaknesses. You know, weaknesses need to be at par, so they don't actually bring you down, um, but you don't need all of your skills to be strengths because there are some things that you are, you know, naturally better at. And if you spend five hours, taking something that you're good at and becoming better, you're going to become way better. Whereas if you take the same five hours and put it towards something that you're really not very good at, you don't really enjoy, you're going to move the needle maybe an inch. So that's kind of a wasted effort, right? Why move an inch when I could probably move a couple feet if I actually mm-hmm. spent the same time right? strengthening strengths? And in general, you're known for your strengths. You're not known because of your okay weaknesses, right? You're known- no, it's a great time. So continue to refine and strengthen those strengths because that's what you will be known for. Sure.
2: So double down on your strengths. Thank you, Shelley. Mm -hmm. Great. And Shelley, in the book, you had a comment about leadership. You said, I think something like some of the most productive people get things done with or through others. How, How have you thought about leadership in your career and what advice might you have for early stage founders that are thinking this through? Yes. So, Again, founder, early stage founders, you
1: know, CEOs. Many times people think, oh, once I'm a CEO, great, I get to make all the decisions. And it's just the opposite. You know, you should be making fewer and fewer decisions the higher you rise in an organization. And people are like, what are you talking about, Charlie? Why me? Right? But the key is you want your team to be making decisions. Yes, you ratify, right? Yes, you approve, yeah. yes, you agree. But you want them to be the ones that are developing these strategies that are making decisions, right? And coming to you with, okay, here's the recommendation, here's what we should do. You don't want people coming to you with, here's the problem, here's the situation, what should we do? You want people to come and say, hey, here's what's going on, I think we should do this, blah, blah, You say, great, go do it, right? That's what I mean. So when you think about it, as founders, one of the biggest challenges is releasing that control because many founders actually are real control freaks. Because it's like, almost by definition, you know, it's your baby, right? You, you spent all this time, effort, to make sure everything is going right and it's working. And so you need your hands everywhere. Well, when you do that, you actually suppress the ability of the team to grow. And it's suppressing the ability of the team to grow. You're suppressing the ability of your company to grow. So you want to make fewer decisions, not more. And you want to figure out how to get more and more work done through others so that you're modeling the right behavior because you want that tier to do the same thing to the next tier. The way you get leverage in building your company is by actually enabling everyone to be as efficient
2: in their ability to make decisions and execute right as possible. Super. And it, you're very successful. You've accomplished a lot, but I bet you still have plans for the next few uh, wave or next chapter. And, um, if you're in the interest of broadcasting your ambitions, what is next on your plan? Uh,
1: you know, here's so here's the interesting one. You're right. I've had a plan forever. I've always had <laughs> my plan. Um, but I will tell you, I find myself in a place where I'm very uncomfortable, right? And I'm very uncomfortable because uh, some of you may know if you've read the book, but if you haven't, you don't. But my husband passed away last year. Yeah, we had been married uh, almost 35 years. Uh, And I could never plan. He had a terminal cancer, so we knew where this was going. Um, And I could never plan without him in the picture. I I, I just couldn't do it. And so when he he passed, you know, I found myself where I don't actually have the plan. So I said, you know what? I spent the last, whatever, 40 some odd years of my life, telling the universe what I want, I'm gonna to listen to the universe and figure out what it wants from me. Wow. What I do know is I'm focused, this whole phase of my life is focused on impact and inspiration. I want more people to be able to achieve their aspirations. And wow. that's why I wrote the book, to give you the tools and show you how to do it. That's why I'm spending time talking and doing all this. And then in the process, I'm gonna to listen to figure out, okay, is there something else that I can offer and do that will actually help make that broader impact?
2: Um, on people. So
1: that's where I am. I'm listening. Wow. To yeah.
2: Well, thank you for sharing that. And, um, you know, our heart is with you in in, uh, in condolences, but um so excited to, to, for this next chapter and you are delivering on the inspiration. We have one last question. Okay. Um, can you tell us about a time you failed and how you overcame it and moved on um, even in the face of imposter syndrome or, you know, other doubts? Oh, gosh.
1: <laughs> yes, there were. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm trying to think of a good one. Well, given the entrepreneurs focus, so um <laughs> metric stream. Uh so here we are, you know, turn this company around because um, we I took the job in the early 2000s, dot com bubble burst, right? The whole bit, it's a mess. We finally get it on track. We are evangelizing about comprehensive compliance and risk because there's no market, but we believe there's a solution, and we're getting our first customers and we're getting going, and finally the analysts at the beginning of 2008, say, ah, there's a new category. Gartner publishes the Magic Quadrant for governance, risk, and compliance, and metric a leader. Yes, right? So we're going to double down. We're going to invest in sales and marketing and implementation people to take advantage of this growth, and we'll raise money in 2009. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Everything went great for a few months. And then, you know, fourth quarter, slam shut, and it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so we limp into 2009. And when I say limp, I mean limp in. You know, we have fumes for dollars. So remember, we're going to raise money and on the growth and all this kind of good stuff. And so here I am with this team that has worked so hard. And are we going to fold or are we going to fight? Now, talk about a risk. You know, I, in February, right, we did not have enough payroll to make it a whole nother quarter. <laughs> all right, just to give you an idea. So we were on fumes and we fought and we made it through. But it was uh, I had paid <laughs> bill I, <laughs> I had so many nights. I was yeah. like, God, you know, we've got to get this customer to pay this bill. Otherwise, you know, I can't do this. I mean, it was crazy, crazy, crazy period. But yes, you you fortitude, perseverance,
2: and you get the right team and you show by example and you just fight. Love it. Well, Shelly, thank you so much for your inspiration. And um, uh, for everyone here, can't recommend the book highly enough. Follow Shelly her, for her wisdom. And um, again, thank you so much, Shelly, for your time and, and wisdom. Absolutely.
1: And thank you so much. And thank you all. And please be unapologetically ambitious.